Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. All right, in today's episode, I have with me a friend and colleague, John Knowles, who really needs no introduction in our community, but he is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance, the JED, which is AOC's official uh, monthly publication. John has been on the show regularly in the past and uh, wanted to have him back on to just talk about a whole range of topics. So, John, welcome to From the Crow's Nest again. It's great to have you. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me on again. I just got done with a... Four week uh, stint of going to numerous conferences, and you were on the top of my list to call. And I figured instead of having to just call and talk to you for an hour and a half, we just have you on the podcast. We can talk about all the stuff we would talk about anyway. So, thank you for taking time out here. How have you been doing here? Pretty well, pretty well. Uh, I haven't been able to get to as many shows as you have. Uh, I'm sort of uh, battening down the hatches with Jed and trying to get that out every month. So, uh, I've missed a few shows, but I, I look forward to some, some travel in the fall. You know, some of the shows we were at, and I mentioned them in a previous podcast, uh, a previous episode last week. We went to I went to the the Directed Energy SNT conference uh, in Mobile. Uh, went to a, a Society for Military History uh, symposium in Fort Worth. Went to uh, the AOC Army SEMA conference and up, up outside of Aberdeen Proving Ground. And then, of course, last week was our EW uh, Capability Gaps and Enabling Technologies conference out at Crane. So we really covered the whole gamut of topics uh, over these four weeks and uh, a lot of really interesting things, which we'll probably get to throughout the, the show. But, you know, wanted to kind of bring you on here to kind of get a sense of, you know, at this point in time here in May, so much going on from Ukraine to China to, to Congress, NATO. So I figured it's best just to kind of take some time, take a step back and talk about some of these topics with you and and what we're hearing, what we're seeing. Uh, and of course, you know, kind of think about where the EW community as a whole and, you know, maybe specifically the AOC as an association uh, should be, you know, putting some of their energies here moving forward. So, you know, just, just to kind of, you know, get us started, you know, like what, what, when you're looking out of the world, what's what's been on your mind? Well, you know, it's interesting because because you and I we deal with with our community, our EW community, MSO community globally uh, on a regular basis, and and I think because we work in this area, we're we're always not on alert, but we're always looking at you know what do we need to fix, which is a long list, right? What do we need <laughs> to get right? Because we are worried about the next conflicts, and it tends to sometimes be seem like in our community, it's a conversation with ourselves because we're not really getting through to anyone else that they need to pay attention to this area, that, that the threats are getting ahead of the electronic warfare or whatever it is. And then, then events happen, whether it's the Iraq war or uh, in this case, Ukraine, and it stimulates the whole system. Like everybody's thinking about it. And, and there's those rare moments where we can actually 
have people that are worried about the same problems we're worried about all the time. And, and so I kind of see that as it's those moments where senior leaders are like, what do we need to worry about right now? And, and they want answers, uh, or they at least want to know what they should be worrying about. And, 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 and you get engaged in that. And so I, I think that's kind of that, you know, 60,000 foot view. I think that's what's going on in the world right now is everybody's interested in EMS operations, SIGINT, cyber, uh, and they're, they're trying to see how it's playing out in these world events, not just the conflict in Russian invasion of Ukraine, but like you said, China, and everybody's thinking about what do I need to think about? And it's great to hear, you know, get the, have the stakeholders attention, you know, starting to talk about it a little bit more. I think one of the things that we oftentimes end up you know, rehashing and talking about over, over the, over time is we get their attention we, they, they're thinking about EW, cyber, all these capabilities, but the solutions to what's wrong takes so much time that we can't always hold their interest long enough to get that solution to the, to the table. And that's why we have an EMS superiority strategy. You know, like we need these long lead, this, this long-term thinking uh, to really fix it the right way instead of going from these episodes, from one episode to another, uh, where we kind of in between lose the attention and lose the ability to fix what needs to be fixed. Yeah, it's, it's something that you and I and several others have discussed a long time is how do we get away from the episodic management or interest in this area? which is driven a lot by conflict, right? We, we get into a fight, we find out gaps, we find out things that don't work. Hopefully it doesn't cost a lot of people's lives to learn those lessons, but very often it does. And then, you know, we get engagement from senior leaders and they, the, the paradigm that I get frustrated by is they think that they, they come in and fix it and then walk away. And it's really about management. It's really about steady strain on the rope, not, you know, not, not, oh, I've got an ad hoc committee or I've got, you know, I fixed this or I put this strategy out and, everything's on autopilot now, everything's fixed. And it's never that way. And I think you and I understand it, but it's, it's to me, the, the, the things that are enduring are creating a bureaucracy for your community inside of decision-making organizations, whether that's Congress, Pentagon, you know, the services or wherever. How do you, how do you build those things that create steady strain? Um, and this is where I really, you know, when I talk to industry, uh, I talk to a company, I just ask them like, you know, if you, if I can get a, all the, all the industry leaders in a room, let's come up with a list of five things that you all want to solve. Each of you wants to solve individually, but you don't you need to act collectively to solve it too. And, and, and those are the things that I worry about. Same with the services, same with any group. I'm like, the number of shared things that we worry about or that we need to solve, but we aren't really good at, you know, necessarily always, you know, that's where the association of little pros comes in is getting together to solve those problems. And, and that becomes very clear in moments like this, where there's a lot more instability in the world in 2022 than there was in 2012. You realize the need for govern that governance piece where you can actually bring these pieces together. Because you, even just going through these conferences over these past few weeks, we saw the directed energy was really across the services. And there was a lot of, I mean, there was a lot of talk about EMSO at this conference. It was, it was fantastic. But the conversation was kind of a little bit different from ours in, in that it's not what, how do we fix things, but how do we do things right the first time out of the gate and getting EW and directed energy integrated at the beginning of development uh, for multifunction systems and so forth. So how do we do it right the first time? But, you know, you have Army, uh, Air, you know, there's a lot of news in the Air Force about what they're, the great things they're doing on the EMS, uh, Navy, 
but you start to hear the same things from each of the services perspective and you really kind of step back and like, you know, really want to see that governing influence on top, like pulling that together and getting that out to the warfighter, whether it's through the combatant commander or, you know, the highest level of DOD is, is getting that structure together so that those decisions can come together and you actually get enduring solutions that cut across the services. Yeah, I think I mean, I'm really heartened by what you were telling me about the direct energy community embracing EMSO. Because I, I think back and I think it took EW 70 years to from World War II to pretty much like the end of the Iraq war and into the into the early 2010s to, to really get the message that you need to integrate. You can't be this special other thing with experts and special equipment that's not really integrated into the force. You need to integrate upfront. So the fact that the MSO or that the uh, directed energy people are having a conversation about multifunction and making sure that DE, that, that high energy lasers, high power microwave, you know, that, that type, so those types of technologies are in the planning phase of multifunction systems, that they're not some, you know, I've got my multifunction box that does radar EW comms and whatever. And then I've got this other box that's going to do my directed energy. That is not going to work in the future, especially on, on platforms that are small and have limited size, weight, power, budget. You need to integrate and think about these things up front. So the fact that that community is behaving differently and in trying to get raise its you know hand and say, hey, look, integrate us in now. Get us into this conversation now. Let's talk about system requirements now. Let's talk about all of this. And, and, and that is, is such a huge piece. That's something that other countries do very, very well because they're smaller and they don't have the re- resources. So they have to think up front. And the U.S. with its size, the DODs with its size and its, its bureaucracy, frankly, is so big and so Byzantine that it's really hard to have that conversation here. So it's, it's really forward thinking of the MSO community to not think about themselves as a science project and a black box and something out of a lab, but something that's really got to create warfighter capability. But the cross-pollination between these two communities has been really good. And, and I, I said previously, you know, on, I think, I think last week's episode, um, you know, when, when I first uh, started going to these events a few years ago, it was, it was split between those who are like, what are you doing here? You're electronic warfare. You're not directed energy, you know, or, or the, or the very, you know, hush, EW enthusiasts would come and be like, I, I'm, I'm glad you're here. You know, it's, I'm glad EW is here. But now, like four or five years later, hopefully the collaboration that we've had with Depths has had some impact on this. But I really think it's a community-wide uh, leadership angle as well. You know, four or five years later, the conversations changed noticeably uh, just by walking into the room. So, and that's really good to hear. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of go uh, another one of the chief topics I really wanted to get to kind of up front here. Um, and we had mentioned it a little bit. It was, you know, what's going on with Ukraine? You know, what, I think when uh, I had you on the last time, it was right after the, the conflict started. We didn't really know a lot. And, you know, you give us some insight. And then uh, a few weeks later, we had a retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Jeff Fisher on talking about his observations. We're now about a couple months a couple months into it, into the conflict, almost three months, I guess, seems to have entered a new phase. What are some of the things that you're observing or what you've seen over the last few weeks uh, that have piqued your interest? First of all, like, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a great geopolitical analyst, but it's been humbling, not just for me, but probably for a lot of people 
because what my expectations were, my assessment of the situation assumptions were in the first five days was, you know, we're three months in now, basically. Uh, and, and wow, I thought the war would be in a much different phase today. I thought really that Ukraine would not have been able to survive the initial Russian attack and that they would probably be in a, some sort of insurgency type phase of the war with, you know, IDs, roadside bombs, um, and some sort of guerrilla tactics, uh, more harassment than anything. So the fact that that they're intact largely, they've contained the fight to the east and the south and basically absorbed a lot of sort of kinetic energy from Russia's initial attack and been able to hold it has been really surprising in a good way, but also just just goes to show you like what what you think and what what you know are very fragile, I guess I'd say. Even with the fight moving to the east and south, it's really been Ukraine dictating exactly what Russia can and can't do on in this conflict. And and that's something I think took, I don't know if it, they, it took people by surprise or they just didn't know exactly how they would respond, Ukraine would respond. But I think the, this, uh, you know, we, we've spent so much time and energy over the last several years, particularly since the Russian annexation of Crimea, that they have such tremendous EW capability. They have such, you know, they have the some of the best technology. You know, they're a competitor, and we really haven't seen that executed in the field the way that we thought they would use this, these technologies, these capabilities, and still trying to figure out why. And I think one of the things that, that Colonel Fisher mentioned was that you know a lot of it comes down to training. You can have the best technology, but if you really can't use it in a, if you're not training in a realistic environment, and you you then can't really. It doesn't have tactical relevance when the when the fight starts, and and I think that that's playing in. There. But what are some of the other things that you think that are that that are going on that have changed your thinking on how Russian EW is looked upon in in, in this conflict? I think you know I was thinking about this, so so I'll just talk about kind of some some. I don't have any crystal ball or any or any like special access into you know into into Kiev or anything like that. So I don't. Uh, so so I'm just looking at like again sort of what I'm seeing uh, in broad in broad brushstrokes. But but when I think back to how I was was sort of viewing this conflict at the first five days of it, and then to today, when I think back, I'm thinking hindsight, like how foolish it was that it should have been a surprise to me or anybody. I think the only people that weren't surprised by this were the Ukrainians. <laughs> you know, you think about uh, time, right, as a factor. Well, Ukraine has been ri- fighting Russia since 2014, since the annexation of Crimea and in, in the in the beginning of the conflict in, in the Donbass, and and that's given them a lot of time actually to get a pretty good look at Russian tactics and capabilities. It's not that Russia unleashed everything it has, but they got a sense of how they use their equipment and what they do. Uh, and in and, and, and their limits of their capabilities. So when Russia started using drones to spot for artillery and, and being able to make use of its long-range artillery, it wasn't a kill web. It was a kill chain. It was had a very it had links that you could break. And there wasn't a lot of redundancy in it. So if they could jam those UAVs and take them down or take control of them or whatever, the Russian artillery lost its effect because they didn't have another way to get in there without really escalating. You know, they weren't willing to risk manned ISR aircraft or anything like that. And they're they're And so the Ukrainians realized that, okay, they're not that robust. They don't have another way to do that. So they really started understanding that there were limitations in 
in the Russian capabilities in the EMS and how the Russians maneuver. Another thing is that, again, going back to the fact that this war really started in 2014, not in February 24, 2022, Ukraine has also just built up a lot of experience against Russian army units and its proxies uh, during eight years of conflict. So the Ukrainians have been learning how the Russians use cyber attacks and in both at a, at a force structure level or in attacking networks, but also just going after individual soldiers with like text messages about what's going on in their family back home. Or they, they've, they've hardened themselves. They've become very resilient to, oh, the Russians are doing that again. So Really, when the Russians came in in February, there wasn't a whole lot of new shock to, you know, the, the Ukrainians have been f- at least introduced into how the Russians fight. What changed was the scale, right? Like they're bringing a lot more equipment, a lot more systems. And that's where I think like the Russians probably overestimated the shock and awe effect of what they were going to do, whereas the Ukrainians really weren't I think, psychologically phased by the invasion so much. They knew what they had to do. They had an inkling, at least, of what they were up against. It wasn't like they had never met before. There was familiarity there. And and, and so when I think about that, when Russia kind of had a limited ability to surprise, it just made me really think through, like, why didn't we see that when we were looking at this? You know, that there, there actually is, it's amazing. Again, when you have time, you can build resilience you can deal with a lot more things because it's not completely new. You're, you're, you've built up to it a little bit in your mind, at least. And so it made me think about just talking about, uh, not to go on a total sidetrack here, but like, I was just thinking about when we thought about this, when I was thinking about it, looking back at like why I thought what I thought back in February versus now, I was thinking about just, and this is something that is relevant to the conversation is, you know, assessments versus assumptions, right? So we can make assessments. We can look at the Russian electronic order of battle, we can look at their capabilities. We can we can we can sift through that data, but then there's things we just can't measure, or we don't measure very well. We can't model it. Those things like willpower and and you know you're fighting on your own turf. You're fighting for your your family, your existence, your country, or whatever. And I think that Russia and the West miscalculated the Ukrainian resolve here. And it reminds me of this, this has happened over and over in history, right? This has happened anytime you go into somebody's country, they're going to fight you differently. And, and, and so when you think about that factor, like our assumptions, our, our assessments may have been accurate, but that is a very small piece of the data set here or the small piece of the equation. And the assumptions that we had were really about our biases and not about getting in the shoes. I think, I think the, the, the Baltic countries talking about Russia, something we've not listened to very well since 2014, they've got a pretty good handle on what they need to do. In any case, like that, my point about that is just like knowing what you know and what you don't know is, is important, but we very often kind of forget and we convince ourselves that our assessments are blended in with our assumptions and they're not. Mm -hmm. And I think from an EW standpoint, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense to you, but that's, yeah. you know, like that, that's a, that to me is, has been a huge factor in how we've, how I've changed how I look at the war. How do you see this playing out then? You know, because it, on, on one hand, you know, people are starting to kind of rein in some of their expectations in terms of what's going to be accomplished from this invasion, you know, the maybe a, only a, a smaller portion of land or a slightly bigger footprint than when they annex 
Crimea. And of course, there's a lot of strategic importance to which area maybe Russia could get or 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 not. But right now, the way things are going, I mean, is it, it appears that you, Ukraine is in this for the long haul, and then they have the opportunity to you basically keep them keep Russia from from any sort of claim of victory here. You know, so how does Russia get out of this? I mean, how, what do you see happening if you, if you can kind of look in a crystal ball, because I'll have you on the show in a few months and we can talk about all the ways that we're wrong, mm-hmm. you know, but like, <laughs> you know, but what, what are the wrong what, things here? <laughs> exactly. You know, like, so, so what, what, what do you, what do you kind of see? How, how does Russia get out of this? And of course, then the, the other outcome, which I do want to get to is, is NATO. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that Ukraine can keep going. I think they have, they, they, with Western help on the material side, Ukraine has demonstrated that they're worth a long bet, that this is not going to change, that they will, if it takes years, they will do this. I don't think they want to give up one square inch of territory. I think they, and again, you got to remember, they think, and I think too, this conflict started in 2014. And so Crimea is part of this equation. And so Russia has the ability to, to change the mode of this conflict and call up reserves and and basically Putin would have more political exposure, more political accountability if he wants to escalate this with a full mobilization. And their plan is to grind their opponent down. But in a way, with what we've sent Ukraine, that grinder can turn back on Russia. That's a lot of bodies. That's a lot of time and expense. It's an economy that will never get out from under the sanctions. I'm curious if Russia ever makes another airplane again. I mean, they're missing huge chunks of their economy. Time is not their friend in this thing. And Ukraine, with again, with Western support, with NATO support, can make Russia recalculate how they're thinking about this war. It's been very interesting to see this because if you think about Russia, Russian exercises like Zapad 21 and they did one. In, they do one in every wet military district. You know, basically um, every year they like they rotate it. And there, if you look at the doctrine, it's always about a NATO invasion of Russia or Belarus or something like that. That was the last one in Zapod twenty one. And and you think about that, and they don't really have a doctrine for dealing with their near abroad where it's not defensive in nature. So their ability to actually create an offensive battle network, like like the West has, and their ability to go project power. Uh, a lot of power in that network uh, with that battle network in an offensive way. It's actually very limited. They're showing that in Ukraine right now. They are really structured around defense um, and, and they're learning the limitations of, of what they can do right now. I think they really did not realize how much is in the U S thinks about this all the time. Cause all we do, all we've ever done since world war two is think about projecting power outside of our borders because that's our, you know, that's our strategy and never fight at home. And Russia's always thought about fighting at home and really not thought very much about projecting power outside their borders. When you get to EMSO, that becomes a very big limitation or an enabler, depending on how you've set that up. That's such an interesting take on that because thinking about Russia and and having a more of a a defensive perspective against NATO, you know, from our perspective, how many conversations have we had about like, you know, five, 10 years ago, like what is the role of NATO? NATO seemed to kind of lose its identity, particularly after the Cold War. But, you know, it kind of struggled, you know, what is the purpose of it? It, it? it never seemed to be the immediate threat. I mean, we 
we never we, we kind of shrugged off this notion of NATO somehow being perceived to be an immediate threat to to Russia. Now NATO through Ukraine has really you know come together again to support Ukraine through through you know aid and and so forth, and it's actually kind of reinvigorated its identity a little bit. You know, with this invasion now, NATO is coming together and saying, "No, we have we have a reason, a purpose." So it's kind of uh, a self-fulfill Russia's self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit, and, and now NATO is strong or stronger than it has been in a long time. And you also have this notion of possibly Finland and Sweden, very strategic geographically, you know, coming into NATO. So how do you see the NATO equation through all this? I think NATO it's it's hard because you don't want to you don't want your highs to be too high and your lows to be too low and so although everyone is coming together more than it has NATO's members have come together more than they have been since the end of the Cold War this is something that is a pretty easy thing for them to agree on Russian aggression is bad and you have a country that may have used to belong to Russia's sphere and in Russia's mindset Ukraine is part of Russia and I know that's a 20th century mindset. I think you go to Ukraine today, you would see a very European country. Mm-hmm. And that's Russia's biggest problem is really it's it's not a military problem for them. It's a it's a politico, political and economic problem for them because a country that used to be in its sphere finds that Europe is a more attractive place to grow in than than the Russian sphere. And so so Russia's couldn't undermine Ukraine in a traditional way of undermining the government, waiting for it to fall, corruption to happen, and swooping in and installing the people it wants. So it's going to, its military solution, which is a very blunt instrument, and they're finding out not a very effective one right now. And so in any case, for NATO, on the flip side of what's happening in Ukraine, or not the flip side, but because of Ukraine, you have Finland and Sweden. And you look at Finland and Sweden, and you're thinking, these are two great democracies with really good economies, modern militaries that have interacted with you know NATO and trained with them sometimes and done things together. Um, and, and and why wouldn't you want them, right? They're just like they're they're very different from the Eastern European countries that NATO had to absorb beginning in the 1990s and 2000s that were full of Russian equipment and had to be modernized. Very slow, long, expensive process for those countries and and for. The U.S. that put a lot of strain on NATO and on top of Afghanistan, Iraq, and operations that didn't look like they were core to NATO. Um, and so the stress that NATO has actually endured over 30 years to have Russia come in and do what it's doing right now with this invasion of Ukraine has, has I would say, almost like come full circle back to the original purpose of NATO. And so NATO's like, we can get around this, we can get around this problem, like we can get together and agree on this pretty easily because this is really in our charter <laughs> like this is because this might as well be 1947 right this might be like why we stood this up in the first place um and so that sense of purpose has been huge but but it has it it, it it so i guess my point is you're seeing a high point of nato agreeing on something and however this conflict ends and whenever it ends i would expect nato to go back to kind of being you know there's a little bit of competitiveness uh among its members but Russia just reminds NATO of why NATO's there. The high point is actually the NATO charter. So yeah. <laughs> it's like reinforcing. So it's 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 basically allowing NATO to be what it was supposed to be or what it was set up to be. Yeah. And, and again, the things that underpin NATO aren't military, really. They're the democracies. It's political and economic. 
It's mm-hmm. it, it, NATO is the military sort of manifestation of that agreement, but Europe is Europe. <laughs> and you're either European or you're not. And if you're if you're part of Europe, you know, Ukraine eventually it's at least economically going to be part of Europe. It wants to be. It's 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 its identity, its expectations. Russia does not have the ability to change that very easily uh, or very inexpensively, and where it could have thirty years ago, you know, or something like that. So I, I don't want to get into a big political discussion, but 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 Sweden and Finland coming in. I mean, you know, what a huge, so easily integrated, adding capability. The, from an EMSO standpoint, it's good for EW. It's good for NATO. It's, EW is, is it's really good to have Sweden come in. You know why? Sweden is to, to move up in, in rank in Sweden. You have to learn about EW and EMS. It's part of officer training. It's almost like it's, it's not a stigma <laughs> to have that in your career, which is not the case with a lot of other NATO countries. Uh, yeah. To know about EW in some countries is to be like, oh, you're not, you know, you're not one of us artillery guys, or you're one of us, you know, it's it's oh, you're one of those EW people. But in in Sweden, it's like required, and and so what a healthy like well-rounded officer they have moving into their senior ranks, and so and so to have countries with that outlook is like. Great, I think it's 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 fantastic for NATO to be able to think and and, and frankly introduce new thinking to them. Mm-hmm. But you have you have just just uh, you know from an EW standpoint, you're going to get a lot of capability. You're going to get a lot, you know, just like I won't call them model model countries in terms of you know how you have to do MSO and EW, but they're pretty good. And and you're obviously from a strategic standpoint, you are. You are making Russia now have to deal with the flank of NATO in the north that it never had to deal with because it had a fairly good relationship with Finland post World War II, and that neutrality is gone now. And so now Russia's got to put more resources into the north because because mm-hmm. Murmansk is up there, and they're going to have to think about about protecting a naval base that could be attacked by land, which, which puts a lot more pressure on Russia and their economy and their ability in their and their military in general. So. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how they can navigate out of around this or out of it in one piece. So that's that's great. Yeah. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems. Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making, up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BA Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way 
to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products that benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is in fact science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels, but in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Obviously, we have a lot of attention focused on NATO and, and Russia. As we're recording this right uh, in this week, President Joe Biden is, I think, taking his first trip to Asia. Um, I think he's in South Korea right now. But we can't take our eye off of China through all of this. Uh, they're sitting here, obviously, watching everything that's going on, taking notes, learning lessons. What are your thoughts on how we have to, obviously, deal with what we're dealing with over in Russia and Ukraine, but you know, obviously taking that and then learning from it and shifting our focus or maintaining our focus on China. I'm going to go back to my statement earlier about assessments and assumptions. So, so we make assessments of China on a regular basis in the U.S. We you know, have our regular annual intelligence report and things like that that we disclose publicly, declassify it. And the, the thing I think that's obviously right now for you, the lessons that China is learning from the Ukraine war are not being disseminated yet through either our intelligence assessments or through like Chinese doctrine or military doctrine or policy or anything like that. So it's early days, but at the same time, you know, I do look at those two because I do think that China will draw some lessons just about how the West reacted to it, because that's obviously a very important factor for China because they're very integrated with the global economy and they cannot afford for the West to create embargoes uh, the way that we have been able to isolate Russia. And, but at the same time, flipping back, Russia is not China. Russia is much less integrated into the global economy. They've, they've been way more isolated. They've isolated themselves in some ways. Um, China is not really a commodity-based economy the way Russia is. It's not about oil and gas for China. China is a customer of that. So, so those, those, there's some fundamental strategic differences that China is not Russia. It's, it's important not to conflate them. Mm-hmm. That said, China's probably really surprised by the Western resolve, at least at first blush, to, to 
to how the West has reacted to Russia. But you've got to remember that Russia had NATO uh, to deal with, right? Russia already, the West already had a, a built-in, you know, 80-year-old, you know, 75-year-old treaty that China is not dealing with that. They're dealing with a much less unified region. It's not as good a containment strategy the way that NATO had been for 75 years trying to contain Russia. So, so and, and, and at the same time, um, having said that, I'll flip over again and just talk about the nature of these conflicts. Ukraine is primarily a land-based conflict. Russia can pour military power into Ukraine easier than China can pour military power into Taiwan because that's a naval, at least, at least to get to Taiwan, that's going to be a naval conflict. Taiwan's a very small island. It doesn't have a lot of space to use the way Ukraine, Ukraine can use space. So, so China's got to come in with, get across that, you know, that, that stretch of Taiwan Strait very quickly. And so it's going to be a much more like quicker and more intense conflict, I think, because you're going to know right away if your combat power can get in or not. It's going to be a, a much more like a, just a different type of, of conflict. China can't grind Taiwan down. They're going to lose a lot in the initial attack, probably, in terms of ships and the ability to get get military power into that zone. So so that, that land versus sea, I think, is an important difference. Again, I think the calculations that, that China's making, they're probably looking at Russia thinking, wow, did they politically miscalculate Ukraine uh, tremendously, they they've created a hornet's nest that they didn't probably have to deal with at least as intensely. Maybe over time, mm-hmm. Ukraine would have been a bigger problem. But they just, I think, they look at Russia and they think, like, why did you have this 20th century urge to control your West the mm-hmm. way you are trying to do that? Whereas China views Taiwan as a breakaway state. I know Russia views Ukraine as part of Russia, but no one else does. Taiwan is in a slightly different position because. There's a number of countries that don't have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. And, and China is actively going through the Asia-Pacific region, trying to find countries that will recognize China and not Taiwan more formally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so the West isn't really as big a factor as uh, it's the unification of Europe in, U- in the Ukraine situation. Isn't, the U.S. isn't able to create an easy alliance that's NATO-like in its, in its vision about Taiwan. And I think you look at the resolve of the people of Taiwan and compared to the resolve of people in Ukraine, you know, the, you know, China is from, from what I understand, they want to execute this in the most nonviolent, you know, kind of like welcoming way. Like, yeah, okay, this is the, the reunification of the, this empire, you know, the, the breakaway is, is being brought back in and, and very, you know, hopefully without any sort of prolonged conflict, they would love to have it just happen within this next, you know, you know, obviously before like the, the, the hundred, the, the century mark, you know, you think about what was going over Ukraine. You know, I think there was a lot of talk, you know, in the rush on the Russian side about, well, once this ha- happens, a lot of people in Ukraine will say, okay, well, they'll welcome Russia back in. And that didn't happen. And that resolve against Russia was a lot deeper than people, a lot of people thought, and I and I think I wonder if China is looking at like, do they understand? Do they have the right the right assumptions about the temperature of the Taiwanese people, uh, people of Taiwan? That if if and when that time comes, you know, what type of resistance 
they're going to face. Yeah, I, I, again, it's a more of a political uh, question and an economic question than I think the military mm-hmm. question to a certain extent. China would love to do this without having to resort to blunt force instrument. And so, so they don't want to do that. And also, as it stands, and I know this is sort of a back of the napkin assessment, China's got to really figure out the attrition of how many ships and aircraft it's going to lose before it can start to get a sizable force landing in Taiwan. It, it's going to be, it, that, is, that is a very difficult path, either land, I'm sorry, air or sea, to get enough combat power into, into Taiwan to take it. And you're right, I do, it, it's a question of Russia does not have a great economic model to offer the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have right next door Europe, which they want to integrate with because everybody else in Eastern Europe's done pretty well being part of Europe economically and and politically. And China's got more to offer economically, but from an EW standpoint, to get more to our conversation about this, the thing I, I wonder is if Russia is this bad at projecting power outside of its borders, despite its, what it looks like on paper, in reality is it's, you know, we in the United States forget how, because we do this all the time, it's really hard to project power outside your borders. Mm-hmm. China, like Russia, has largely had a defensive doctrine in its military. It's, it, it doesn't have a lot of airborne electronic attack aircraft or you know, capabilities to go project power outside, very far outside of its borders. And so China's really got to look at what does our offensive battle network look like? Mm-hmm. What do we have to build to even take something that is, is seemingly small as Taiwan? It getting there is very, very difficult. It's very exposed. How do we? How are we going to do that? Um, and that is the probably the most important calculation in in any conflict. I think is will they win a electromagnetic contest against? a U.S. and allied group that is resolved to resist mm-hmm. China's ability to take Taiwan. Um, and and that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the part I don't even know. Um, but, but that's something that there is, I think, an interesting EW aspect to, or, you know, MSO aspect to China that is probably more relevant than it is in Ukraine, at least for now. Mm-hmm. But to go back to Ukraine for a second... And I hate to jump around on you. Sorry about that. But the fight in Ukraine, the last couple aid packages from the UK and the US have included jamming equipment. Because as Ukraine starts using these long-range artillery systems and things like that, it gets kind of interesting because if that's long-range artillery, you need to have a spotter up front. And that spotter's got to be able to use sensors and then communicate what they're seeing back to correct fire or to find targets or whatever it is. And those links can be cut. And I think Ukraine is understanding that the Russians have the same problem and that they need to cut those links too. If they're going to actually have a counteroffensive in Ukraine and roll the Russian forces back, they've got to be able to, because the, the Russians will leave people up front to spot for their artillery as they retreat or as they fight for ground. They're obviously going to be less dependent on drones. That's where that jamming equipment comes in. That's an aspect that Taiwan has to think about too. There is an electromagnetic competition that Taiwan is going to have with China that is going to be on uh, like something like what I was explaining with, with Ukraine and Russia with like long range 
long-range weapons need long-range sensors and long-range communications to make them all work together on a battle network. And I think Taiwan and China understand that better. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, that might create caution uh, in, the, in the case of that conflict because that's a, more of a prerequisite uh, in Taiwan and in Taiwan-China type uh, scenario. Well, you mentioned, you know, jumping around going from China to Ukraine. I'm going to actually return that favor and jump around on you completely <laughs> and, and change topic because we, we're, we're running out of time here. But I yeah. wanted to kind of I did want to address one more topic, and that's Congress. You know, we have the annual defense budgets underway here. The, the All the hearings and, and the markups are scheduled for June. So by the time I have you back on, it'll be after all that. So I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on the role that Congress has to play in this. Obviously, they've been they've been uh, authorizing and appropriating a lot of the aid that goes over there and saying, hey, it's okay to do this. You know, obviously we have the annual defense budget. We have supplemental funding. We also have an election year. I'm not going to ask you to prognosticate on that. <laughs> Thank but, you. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, it's, a, it's a reality that is influencing the direction of spending and authorization bills this year. So you know, what are some of the things that you're looking for Congress to address or that Congress needs to do today and, and you know in the, in the near future as it pertains to all the stuff that we talked about here and you know in emso and and the role that emso plays in military competitions today you know over in, in russia as well as china i think when i look at this budget it's almost like a budget that was a long this budget proposal uh for 2023 it's kind of like it's bringing to a point a a conversation that's been going on really since at least the mid-2000s and that is, how can we pay for modernization if we are continually paying for legacy force structure, system, you know, aircraft and things that really aren't going to be super relevant in a in a fight with a near peer or a peer, and 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 so do we need the what aircraft do we need to retire? What ships do we need? Um, what do we really need? And what what are we paying for with O and M? You know funding that we need to free up. So just to give you an example, in our world, obviously the big news coming out was the Navy wanted to retire a number of EA-18G aircraft that it just bought uh, not too long ago. But the Navy's making a realistic assessment, I think, of what they, how they're going to do airborne electronic attack in a highly contested environment and what's survivable and what can get into the battle space and make a difference and what's going to have to hang out on the edge of the battle space and 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 support but not necessarily get into the fight as easily or be as effective so can we penetrate if it can't penetrate it seems to have a lot less value if it can't penetrate into the into the uh into the threat rings and so there the services have asked in the past in small ways like the a10 fight right the a10 retirement um things like that like can we get rid of this and do the mission with something else and congress has been very resistant to that and so, again, going back to our world, Marine Corps retiring the EA-6B and getting rid of manned prowlers and going the Marine Corps and going to unmanned UA, you know, UASs to do a lot of the airborne electronic attack mission. Those were, those were difficult conversations, but they weren't, again, assessment, right? We can make the assessments on that. We can model it. We can do the simulation. We can show you why this is better to do it one way and not another. Um, and so, so when you take that, that argument about what's relevant in the future fight, the Air Force is cutting a huge amount of force structure, a lot of aircraft that it just doesn't want to keep 
in order to pay for modernization because the bill, you can't pay both bills. You've got to trade them off. And that's probably the most important thing that Congress seems to now be having to make decisions. It's not about saving a squadron in your home district to keep, you know, to keep everyone happy. Those, what I'll call luxury decisions, are no longer available to Congress. So they're going to have to look at very difficult decisions and get really serious about force structure conversations for a future force, not a today force. I think that those decisions are certainly getting a lot more more attention on, on Capitol Hill. I do hope that, I mean, it's, it's a lot of tough decisions these members have to make that, you know, in terms of the impact that they may or they may have at home. Uh, and yet, you know, it's still an election year. So we know that you know, there's going to be limited progress here in the next few months. There's, you know, it'll, the bills will pass the chambers and probably sit in conference or kind of a purgatory until after the election. Obviously, we, let's, you know, no one should get their hopes up that these bills are going to pass before the end of the fiscal year. Yeah. But uh, you know, just looking at reality, so you know, it'll it'll be interesting to see how their resolve takes shape pre election here during markups and 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 when the bills come to the respective chambers in the House and Senate and then how that resolve changes or stays the same after the election when that spotlight is off a lot of these members and in some cases you know that that will be the, some of the last votes some of these members will have so like how does that how does that going to affect uh, the overall funding but I do, I do think ultimately, you know, it's, it's always been a, we've talked about this for I don't know how many decades here, two decades, I guess. I've long really had taken issue with, you know, we are now at a place, you know, from a, a defense budget standpoint in Congress that it's just commonplace that the bill, the bills, you know, they'll get taken care of, you know, in December. Um, that seems to be, you know, the, the new fiscal year. And I remember when I was on the Hill, it was a rare occasion if the bill actually slipped past September 30th, completely different times you know, today. So, and when we talk about the delays in the budgeting, I mean, it has a huge impact on the development of some of these programs. You know, you, you can't just fund a program and dump a lot of money in it in May of one year and expect it to hit all of its milestones that has been long range planning for. So, you know, you have the, these, these cascading effects to some of this kind of delayed budgeting that's been going on these these years. So like how do, how does Cong- how can Congress kind of get back into making some of the tough decisions it has to and it's you know really executing its responsibility to get funding on time at the end of the you know at the start of the fiscal year how can we bring that back a little bit at least closer to the way that it had always been before then. Well I think I think one of the things that's going to happen is if you can manage to get through this force structure trimming down legacy fort structure that really isn't contributing a lot to your combat power, then the decisions get a little bit easier because you can just focus on modernization and not how many squadrons you have in your district or, or, or base or whatever. And, and you, you need to have an agile young force. The age of our, of a lot of our weapon systems is incredible. We're still living on a lot of things that were not just designed in the cold war, but, but, produced in the Cold War, or at least a, a version of that, uh, you know, some sort of model like that. So I think of the Army, the Black Hawk helicopter or whatever. And and so getting to that next generation, if those systems aren't survivable, and this is where EW needs to step up, we've been doing a lot of modeling. We understand what's survivable in, a, in, in different types of conflict scenarios. And we need to really 
we provided that information. And so the decisions aren't unknown. They're just hard to make because you're going to have to take some medicine somewhere, but you don't want to, you just don't want to take it out of your future force. And, and that's really where they're at is we've, we have kicked this can for a long time down the road, you know, for a good, like 20 years almost. And, and we really have a lot of, of systems that just aren't really going to be useful. Um, and we need to get to the next ones and the next ones are going to be actually easier to maintain. They're built with commercial technology. They're, you know, they're going to be cheaper to sustain, we hope. And so I look at that decision. Congress is, it has to be part of that decision. Um, but when they, when they do make it, I think their life will get simpler because they won't have to worry about the baggage of time. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, that they won't have to worry about that, that older equipment, uh, as much. You just you have to swallow that. Well, thank you for joining me again here, John. That's all the time we have for, for today's episode. Um, but I, I do thank you for coming on the show, and I look forward to having you back on again in, in a few months to once again kind of talk about how the world is uh, changing yet again from what we uh, <laughs> we thought it would be. So thanks for appreciate for, it for being on the show. I love talking with you. Thanks, Ken. Right, good one. Thank you. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guest, John Knowles, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance, the AOC's official publication. I also would like to bring your attention to our sister podcast, The History of Crows, that chronicles the history of electromagnetic warfare uh, from its earliest roots to the most recent operations. Uh, you can download that wherever you get your podcast or visit crows.org podcast. And as always, we love to hear from our listeners. So we ask that you take a few minutes to rate us, give us some comments, email us some of your questions and comments that we can use to continue to improve the show. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.